This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode 16, Trillions is the New Billions, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Dan Creeder, Ben Reitzis, Dan Belton, John Hill, and Ben Jeffrey, all from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our top line thoughts on the Treasury yield curve, Treasury's $800 billion question for the month of June, the Fed's $1.5 trillion in Treasury coupon purchases since March 15th, BOC intervention potential, and the massive retracement in credit and FX that shapes our outlook for these markets in coming months. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. The financial markets continue to look past the economic destruction caused by COVID-19 in this backdrop of substantial fiscal and monetary support with plenty of dry powder left. The recent addition of civil unrest in the U.S. and further elevated political tensions does add another layer of uncertainty to the economic backdrop. Reopenings in some large cities have been delayed, and this backdrop may also further complicate any next wave of fiscal stimulus plans and impact November election odds. So let's just begin. As usual, we open up the discussion with the Treasury market, so I'll pass it to Ian. Thanks, Margaret. During the last 37 trading days, U.S. Treasuries in the 10-year sector have held a range between 54 and 78 basis points, with an average of 66 basis points, which is effectively where we are at this point. What I find fascinating is while the 10-year benchmark has been relatively stable, the shape of the curve has continued to steepen, and the 530s curve is now back to effectively the steepest levels that we've seen since February of 2017. Now, to a large extent, we know what's going on. The Fed has committed to keeping rates very low for the foreseeable future, resulting in the front end being largely range-bound, anchored to the Fed, whereas the balance of the curve has become largely directional. On one hand, any incremental amount of Treasury issuance that disproportionately hits 10s and 30s adds to the steepening pressure. Moreover, we've seen an increase in corporate supply recently, which has added to the momentum toward a steeper curve. It's not yet an inflation story, although if you look at five-year, five-year forward break-evens, they're off the lows that we saw on the 19th of March, but still middle of the range, certainly not as extreme as the shape of the curve. My expectation is that by the end of this year, we will get to a point where the near-term deflationary pressures have come and gone, and the return of consumer price inflation will once again be topical. Ian, I think you raise a real interesting point about the issuance out the curve. But one thing, you know, when I look at 
Fed purchases out the curve and, you know, the percentage of what they actually own, you know, even if you look at, you know, 2040 out to 2050, the SOMA holdings as a percentage of outstandings for some of these maturity buckets are getting quite high in the 50 to 70% range for some of the buckets. And, And do you think that if the Fed thought that long-end rates were getting too high, they could just ramp up longer-end purchases? Well, I think the flip side of that argument is what happens when they do reach their limits. Isn't that an additional steepening pressure, which would be my base case scenario? I do think that to a large extent, we have traded the bulk of QE in the compositional form that we know it now. And to your point, Margaret, if the Fed changes the rules the curve is going to shift to accurately reflect that transition. Now, yield curve control has been tossed around a number of times, and that would certainly have an impact on the front end of the curve and presumably add to the steepener as well. One of the things that we've been debating is if the Fed does transition to yield curve control, what do they do with their QE purchases? Do they end up buying the exact same amount, only further out the curve, which would intuitively flatten the curve? Or... Do they scale back because yield curve control in and of itself is QE, just by a different name? That'll be one of the big debates over the course of the balance of this year. Yeah, Ian, and we've made it this far without talking about another big dynamic, not explicitly in rates, but the performance of the stock market. And you highlight the potential introduction of yield curve control, further expansion of the balance sheet. And to me, what this reflects is really sort of a in Powell we trust dynamic. The fact that risk assets have been able to hold up so well, despite everything we've seen going on in the macro backdrop, suggests to me that even though the FOMC has ruled out negative policy rates as their next tool, clearly there is faith that the Fed has the willingness and ability to act further to help mitigate the pain going forward. Yeah, I agree with you totally, Ben. I think that what you're describing is exactly what's going on in in credit spread markets as well, where you have this dynamic where you want to be long risk because if the economy ends up improving from here, credit risk will naturally fall. But if things deteriorate, there's a perception that governments and central banks around the world are going to be there to unleash more stimulus and ultimately prevent credit spreads from going wider. So it's almost like you have the possibility of upside without much downside here. And that's why we've seen spreads narrow as much as they have. Yeah, and to your point, Dan, I think stimulus is the main reason that spreads have done so well over the past two months. Broad investment grade index spreads have narrowed over 200 basis points since late March, and they're currently 80 basis points lower than their peaks in 2011-2012. They're even below their 2016 highs, and they're just about 20 basis points above their levels that we saw at the end of 2018. And given this pace of narrowing we've seen lately, it's not unthinkable to think that we could get below those end 2018 levels in short order. And I think that the role of central banks in the move in credit spreads can't be overstated. I mean, with how much liquidity that global central banks have pumped into the system, people have been increasingly pushed out the credit spectrum. And when you look at the credit spectrum from a broader view, IG corporate is actually a relatively safe place to be. So I think that's why you've seen such a dramatic narrowing. And the question then becomes, what would it take to send risk asset prices lower once again? And when we talk about that, we have to look at not just the absence of a V-shaped recovery, but also some potential threat to further government stimulus. And some of the social unrest that's dominated headlines in the past couple of days complicates the potential for further fiscal stimulus. 
One thing we know for sure, though, is regardless of the direction fiscal stimulus goes from here, there's very likely to be additional monetary stimulus. In the U.S., a lot of Fed facilities haven't even begun lending yet, including the MLF, the Primary Market Corporate Credit Facility, Main Street Lending Facility. None of these have lent even a dollar. And even assuming maximum capacity in all of those programs, the Fed still has almost $2 trillion worth of powder left. So there's plenty of monetary stimulus remaining in the U.S. to help support risk assets. The question is, whether or not monetary policy is actually stimulating the economy in a meaningful way. I'm going to take that conversation uh, up to Canada, where things are are generally similar to uh, how things are shaking out in the U.S. We've seen the Bank of Canada's balance sheet uh, explode. It's it's almost quadrupled in size over the past couple months as they've unleashed uh, almost every policy they can think of at this point. Again, there there's more, just like the Fed, there's more that the Bank of Canada can do. They can increase their purchases. They can broaden the, the types of assets they're buying. They can, they can even go lower on rates if necessary. For now, though, with a new governor coming in this week, we think they do, they do remain on hold for now. But looking at the broader backdrop, the question is whether the Bank of Canada is willing to continually step up and, and fund all of the issuance that's coming. If you look at the federal government deficit with all of the stimulus they've put and will continue to put forward, their deficit looks like it's going to come in well over $200 billion, maybe 250 or even $300 billion, which means a doubling in issuance there. And the same can be said of the provinces. The provincial landscape as a whole, the, their issuance calendar looks like it's going to be double what it was last year. And so we've gone into June 1 coupon payments, which is a, a seasonally strong period for the Canadian bond market. And that has seen, even on, on June 1 and now June 2, we've seen the curve steepen a little bit. And and so there's a, there's a push and pull between the supply dynamics and, and how aggressive the Bank of Canada is willing to be. And I think this is going to play out from a from a broader perspective, not just in, in Canada, but globally. And we'll see how aggressive central banks are willing to be. And at this point, I wouldn't bet against them. Ben, you raise an interesting point in Canada. And just to put it in context of what the U.S. has done, the Fed has bought almost $1.56 trillion in coupons since March 15th. And that has actually resulted in net negative issuance of coupons available to the market of $1.28 trillion. They've taken an incredible amount of the issuance and coupons out of the market, and they own about 26% of the coupons outstanding. This is in high contrast to, to the bill market, where they have not been really buying anything since right before March 15th. Yeah, the bill market's been extremely interesting since the beginning of March. We've seen trillions of dollars of issuance, but the number I want to really harp on is $600 billion. If you take Treasury's guidance for where the cash balance will be at the end of June, i.e. the end of Q2, the cash balance needs to drop by about $600 billion. All else equal, kind of a naive assumption, This should then introduce about $600 billion of liquidity either into reserves or generally into the system that'll put downward pressure on repo rates, bill rates, and just kind of flood the system with excess reserves all in a period of about four weeks. Now, I would offer a very important nuance here is that $800 billion quarter end guidance we got was back from mid to late April. The macro situation is obviously extremely dynamic at the moment, and it's not obvious they'll actually follow through on hitting that target. That said, even if they only go half the way down, we're still talking about a potential $300 billion infusion of liquidity over the next few weeks. So an important space to watch in the front end, at least as we get through Q2. 
And a $300 billion change in Treasury's cash balance prior to this year, we would have looked at that as a massive move. Obviously, numbers have changed a lot this year, but a $300 billion change could go a long way towards keeping LIBOR very low or moving it towards all-time low levels and, and putting downward pressure on swap spreads and, by extension, credit spreads based off the change in Treasury's cash balance. So, yeah, when John talks about uh, the Fed flooding the system, well, you know, where does the money go? And clearly, some of it spills out into uh, equities, commodities, and currencies. If you go back and look at where the equity market was prior to COVID-19, and then you know, look at where it fell in the crash, the S&P 500 lost 35%, but it has retraced back 73% of its losses. And interestingly enough, the US dollar index, uh, BBDXY index, had a, a safe haven spike during the crisis. It has also retraced back exactly 73% of its gains as money is flooded out in, into foreign currencies. So, you know, where have things not retraced to that extent? And the answer is oil. Oil has only, if you're looking at Brent crude, retraced uh, 42% of its losses. And, and in currencies, this is kind of interesting because in general, the, uh, the crude-related currencies have not retraced as much. And those that are importers of crude have retraced a great deal. So, for example, Aussie has retraced 91% of its uh, losses while Australia imports oil. Mexico has only retraced 56% of its losses but Max isn't an oil exporter. I think that energy probably has room to, to catch up to all, all the other things that have been buoyed by the flood of liquidity. And so with that, the energy currencies probably have room to catch up too. Well, we're definitely seeing signs of a rotation or an evolution in parts of the FX market. Pre-COVID-19, the US dollar was able to rally versus the euro alongside global equity markets because of a clear case of economic divergence between the U.S. and the rest of the world. But post-COVID-19, that economic divergence narrative is not as clear right now. And until it returns, the U.S. dollar is going to compete with other low-yielding currencies like the euro and the yen for what seasoned FX investors might refer to as funding currency status. Even though positioning in euro dollar isn't huge, leveraged funds are still net short. And if that neutralizes by a few billion dollars over the next month or so, we could see euro dollar retest the 113, 114 range. That is, that is certainly a possibility. And it might be at that point that FX investors start to reassess relative fiscal policies, relative economic performance, and also the global trade picture. It's also important that FX investors digest the fact that the scale of fiscal stimulus in the eurozone is going to be relatively small. Its impact is going to be staggered. And also the concept of the eurozone involves member states contributing funds and then requesting that those funds be returned in some form or another. That's a big political issue which needs to be resolved over the medium term. Thanks, Stephen. So I'd like to say the bottom line here is that the retracement has been substantial in several markets, but the Fed has plenty of firepower left against this economic, political, and social backdrop that remains highly uncertain. At uh, this time, I'd like to thank all of our BMO experts and to thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons, monthly episode 16, Trillions is the New Billions. Please reach out to us with feedback and ideas on topics you would like us to tackle. We really, really appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. 
we'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.karens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.